This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. So I'm going to start off in verse 1 through 21. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And, we had, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crown, crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Thank you, Sarah. All right, finish this statement for me, if you would. Um, Oftentimes, the best offense is a good... You all knew it really well. Too bad the Colts didn't know that a few weeks ago. (laughs) If you don't know this already, uh, the Colts set an NFL record. Uh, for the uh, worst, pretty much the worst defense in the second half of any other team in NFL history, where the uh, Vikings were able to have the greatest com- second half comeback ever. Uh, they went into the half uh, up 36 to 3. They ended the half down 39 to 36. So 36 unanswered points were scored by the Vikings' uh, offense against the Colts' defense. And you ought to know, if you don't know football, you ought to know that if you come to play and you don't have a good defense, you're in a lot of trouble. So we're talking now about the mission of what we're called to. This is why we're going through the book of Acts. And I've been trying to remind you now for almost a year, actually over a year, uh, about how important it is to live on mission. 
I'm going to remind you what that mission is by going all the way back to Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. So here's Acts 1.8, which says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here's the mission. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. And read this last part with me, church. And to the end of the earth. So it began in Acts. It continues to this day. And God's people are still called to be witnesses. And so the offense of that is pretty obvious. That means that we should, as Christ said, to preach the gospel to every creature. We should be people who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope you've been challenged this past year and a half almost in the book of Acts that you'd be looking for opportunities to love your neighbors, to be on mission to be filled with the Spirit, and to find opportunities of sharing Christ, to talk about the gospel, more than just living the gospel, to actually bring the name of Jesus up and talk about how he died for our sins and rose again and how others need to believe that. That's obviously the offense. But do we also need a good defense? And I would contend to you that we do. we got to think about our defensive game a little bit. Paul did. And just as Paul was found accused... And in needing to defend himself, if we live for Jesus, the further we go on in this culture, we may find ourselves needing to defend ourselves some. And what do we bring to the table for our defense? They had all their guns to play here. They brought out the best of the best. So they had the high priest himself come down to accuse Paul. Not only that, they hired this Tertullius, this lawyer, to come and to make the official Roman accusation against Paul. They're bringing it all to bear. They couldn't kill him when they tried to in the temple, so now they're trying to stop him by Roman law. But Paul is able to defend himself, and he defends himself well. And do you notice what he did? He simply tells the truth. These folks came with lies and exaggerations and half-lies of what went on, but Paul just simply says, this is what really happened. And I live my life in such a way that if I'm just real and honest about what I did, it's its own defense. Now we're going to look specifically at verses 14 through the end to see what Paul's confession is. Because he says, this I confess. Uh, When I studied, I found myself really uh, focusing in on several things he said here that I think can challenge us. So here is the uh, challenge for the day, uh, is this. Let's live a life that's ready to make a defense. Live a life that's ready to make a defense. And I believe we'll do that standing on three key convictions that Paul reveals as he gives his confession. So let's focus in here on verse number 14 and check this out. This is um, Paul's confession. He says this, so he's accused by everyone. And then in verse number 10, he begins to make his defense. And I'll start there. Let's start with verse number 10. And when the governor had nodded to him, to Paul, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. By the way, compare that to all the flattery of Tertullius. It's really interesting. Paul is really simple about it. And uh, not so flattering, but verse number 11, uh, you can verify that it, that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. See, they had lies. And Paul said, man, I was just living and I was just doing the right thing, and they know. And there's verse number 14 then. But this I confess to you, according to the way 
which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything, everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Three convictions. Here's conviction number one. Paul had an exhaustive faith. Paul had an exhaustive faith. It's interesting that he brings up this term, the way. Christians were called a lot of things in that time, and we even see several titles for Christians in the book of Acts. In fact, Acts 13 says they were first called Christians in Antioch, but Christians wasn't the main title that those who believed in Jesus were given. That title was the way. They were followers of the way. That's used more often in Acts to describe the early church. In fact, Paul himself uses it way back in Acts 9 when he said, I went to persecute those of the way. Well, what in the heck does the way mean? Well, if you recall, Jesus said in John chapter, uh, um, John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the the way. What he was being accused of is leading people away from Judaism and away from the law. And what Paul is saying is, okay, I didn't do that because really the law wasn't the way. The way was in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believed in the way. They call it a sect, but the reality is that's what I believed in. And what Paul was saying is, look, I didn't set aside the law. I didn't set aside the prophets. I believe everything in the law and the prophets. That's what I mean by exhaustive. The Old and the New Testament, Paul says, I embrace them both. But it was Jesus. And it was through Jesus. And that's what the Pharisees didn't see. That's what they didn't believe. And that's what they hated about Paul. It was absolutely true. Because Paul's eyes had been opened like those on the road to Emmaus, where Paul said, where the scripture says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is encompassed in and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And it was them, the Pharisees, that had missed it. And Paul said, no, I believe all of it, all of it. Church, he believed all of it. You see the emphasis on faith. Look at 14 again. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. Here it is, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. They didn't. They missed key promises of a Savior coming and suffering. They missed Jesus marching into Jerusalem on the exact day the prophets predicted. They missed Micah where it says that he would be born in Bethlehem. They didn't believe it all, but Paul said, no, I am the one who believes everything laid down, and I believe the entire word of God. All right, so New Testament Christian in 2000 and almost said 22. It ain't 22 anymore, 2000 and... 23 now, all right, hours into it. How does that apply to us? Do we seek to understand at all the law of God? Oh, no, 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 Pastor, we don't, we don't have to live by the law anymore because Jesus Christ abolished the law. Did he abolish the law? No, Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. 
And there's still much of the law that reveals the heart of God. There's still much of the law that we should seek to walk in obedience to. Let me give you an example. Here's a clear one. These are the Ten Commandments. Let me throw them up on the screen for you. Here are the Ten Commandments. And um, let's just look at these together. You shall not have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Kids, I'm going to read that again. Teenagers, honor your father. All the teens, read this with me if you would, please. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. All right, all good things. And things we should still seek after today. You shall have no other gods before me or you should not make idols. We can do that. Do you know what idols are? Idols are just simply God replacements. An idol is a, any God replacement is an idol. So I ask, where do you go ultimately for your security, for your comfort, for your pleasure, for your significance? Where do you run to get these things? Is it to God or is it to other things? We have a tendency to go to our job for our ultimate security or relationships for our ultimate significance. We look for other things to be the ultimate a source of our comfort and pleasure, but it, it's really all these things are found in God and God alone, and we are very, very susceptible of making idols and worshiping them today. Whenever you disobey the word of God to get something else, or when you don't get that thing, that thing has become an idol. It's become more important than the word of God. And so that's something that is law, but we should consider and think about that. Here's, here's the, the challenge of being a pastor and regularly preaching in a church that is grace-centered. We tend to swing the pendulum back and forth. It's either here's the standard and live by it, which is true, there is a standard to live by, or it's, hey, Jesus has forgiven us of all things, so we're all okay, which is true, but there's a balance between those things. There's still a standard to live by that we should strive for, and we have God's grace. How about going back to the Ten Commandments? Uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, I tell you what, uh, the name of Jesus is a very powerful name. And at the name of Jesus, what's going to happen, church? Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. We saw just a couple weeks ago in, in, on Sunday morning that Philippians 2 reveals he's been given the name more excellent than any other name. It's an awesome name. It's a powerful name. And so many people use it as a curse word. I still think that's a sin. I'm not going to talk a lot about number four because we're stepping into Genesis in a couple of weeks, months, maybe a year. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> after Easter, hopefully somewhere soon after Easter, we'll be jumping into Genesis and we're going to talk a lot about sap and what it means for us. But look at the other ones. Should we still honor our father and our mother? Is it still bad to murder? Still bad to commit adultery? I mean, yeah, we get all these things that are still in place today, and they're elements of the law that we still need to believe are standards for us to live up to. Jesus did not abolish the law, but what did he do, church? He fulfilled the law. And the difference for us is that when I fail to honor God with my complete and total worship but have no other gods before him, when I fail to do that, 
I run to Jesus. When I have found myself not resting in Jesus well, little hint about the Sabbath, I need to run to Jesus. When I have hated in my heart, which God called murder, or lusted in my heart, which Jesus revealed as adultery, I can run to Jesus because he's the fulfillment of the law. So this, this is the great fight in the Christian life today. We've got to strive to live a certain way and to abide by God's word, all of God's word, to live it out, but also to recognize in Christ's fulfillment of the word. And yes, there are elements, ceremonial elements of the law we don't observe in the, anymore. We don't sacrifice lambs because he was the lamb of God that takes away our sin. But there's much that reveals the heart of God that we should strive for as well. So let's have, like Paul did, so if we live this out, if we're living, here, simply this, if we're living according to the word of God, it's gonna be hard for the enemy to find fault if your life is encircled within the word. And they'll try. But if you live according to God's law, God's word, it's gonna be a life that's ready for defense. An exhaustive faith, because it is faith. It is believing. I gotta believe these things are true. And I found in my life so many of these Old Testament passages that when I exercise faith in them, give me great hope. Can I give you a couple of them? Let's do this. Let's turn to Isaiah for a moment, if you would, please. Isaiah. I love the book of Isaiah. And I want you specifically to go to chapter 55. Isaiah 55, if you would, please. This is Old Testament. This is written to Israel. But I want you to see how true it is for us today. Isaiah 55, verse number one says this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. By the way, this is not God's diet plan, okay? This is not talking about real physical food. It's talking about where you find your soul's nourishment. We're all hungry. Let's say that together. Say, we're all hungry. We're all hungry. We're all thirsty. And we all want to find satisfaction and fulfillment somewhere. And we spend our life, our energy, our emotional energy, looking for stuff that will never satisfy. And yet God says, come, come, come. Let your eyes fall on verse number six. This is awesome. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have, church, compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's who our God is. And I don't know about you, but here's an Old Testament promise I can see fulfilled in Jesus because ultimately Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the well of water springing up to everlasting life. When I see Christ in this, 
I know I can come to him and find forgiveness and pardon and satisfaction of my soul. There's one Old Testament passage that I get really geeked up about and I find a lot of hope in. You want another one? Awesome. Let's go to Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3. Written uh, probably by Solomon, Lamentations was. A reflection of the emptiness of life. Sometimes life feels empty. Can I get a witness? What do you do when your life feels empty? Where do you go? Lamentations 3.19. Remember my, by the way, since we have, we have a second service, I'm not even looking at the time. I'm just preaching. You guys may be here till one o'clock. Hope it's all right. Uh, <laughs> just kidding, all right? Lamentations 3.19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. Okay, so remember when I've wandered away from God. Do you have times when you've wandered from God's law? The wormwood and the gall, those are bitter things. Verse 20, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will, church, hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait on him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Okay, yeah, Old Testament, absolutely. But you put the fulfillment of Jesus over this, which showed unquestionably his steadfast love and his death on the cross paid for your sin, which enables God to give you mercy and pardon and forgiveness every morning. It's all of it, church. And when you run to all of it and you live your life according to all of it, man, you have a life of hope. So how are you doing with understanding the word of God? This is why we encourage you to read your Bible every day because it's filled with things that'll feed your soul. Have that exhaustive faith and live in that exhaustive faith. It will help you defend yourself when the enemy attacks. Also this, let's go back to Acts 24. If you would please, Acts 24, and see where Paul goes next. Verse 14 was clear. He believed everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And I'm telling you, I could preach three messages on just all the promises we could run to. But let's go on to verse number 15 and see this. What's Paul's next thing he points to? He says this, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Okay, so for sure, Paul's alluding back to when he was before the council. And remember this, you had the Sadducees who did not believe in a resurrection and the Pharisees who did believe in a resurrection. And what Paul did is say, look, really? This is what this is about. I believe in a resurrection and some of you don't. And that began this massive argument between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And, and Paul really believed this was the crux of the issue. And he brings it up here again. Hey, I'm living, he says, basically with a hope. And here is my hope that there will be a resurrection from the dead. 
Now, notice what he mentions. He mentions two different uh, people that will be resurrected, having a hope which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So let's unpack what these things are. And I want to start with the unjust for a moment to say, uh, let's have this expectant hope and recognize there is a resurrection of the unjust. And you may ask, okay, well, how in the world does the resurrection from the unjust bring me hope? It's interesting to note that uh, this is the only place in the entire New Testament where Paul himself mentions the resurrection of the unjust. In all of his epistles, he focuses just on the resurrection of the just, those who are in Christ. But here we see that Paul now mentions, we obviously believed it, that there would be a resurrection of the unjust. Now, other Old or New Testament authors frequently mention the resurrection of the unjust. In fact, this is from uh, Paul's friend Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, which says this, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Now watch and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Okay, so there is a day of judgment coming. How does that give us hope? We're doing a lot of Bible turning this morning, but I want to begin the new year just throwing a lot of Bible your way and digging into a lot of Scripture together. So let's go to uh, Psalm 73, if you would, because I want to show this to you. Um, I think what we have in Psalm 73 is the uh, psalmist Asaph going through something that I think a lot of Christians go through. So I want to walk you down this road a little bit and ask the question, okay, why is it hope-giving that the unjust will be resurrected to judgment? Why is that the case? Well, here is Psalm 73, and I want to start in verse number 1. So here's verse number 1. Let your eyes fall there on your Bible. Uh, Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, amen? Now look at what verse 2 says. But as for me... My feet almost stumbled, and my steps had nearly slipped. Okay, okay, he's being honest. I was struggling. Okay, why? Verse number three, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever do that? You ever look around and say, dang, how are these guys? They got so much. Where is that coming from? Um... I don't know why, but my mind went to Ricky Gervais. I don't know if you know who Ricky Gervais is. He's a uh, comedian in uh, England. Um, he's worth $160 million. He's the guy who kind of came up with The Office, and he's made a bunch of money off The Office, and, which many of you guys enjoy. I know you do. Just admit it. Uh, I get people in my church who can quote The Office better than they can quote the Bible. All right, so I know, I know. I like it too, all right. But anyway, um, the home he lives in is worth $16 million. And I don't, I don't know what he drives. I imagine it's I. <laughs> and he's a devout atheist who often mocks God. What do you do with that? Well, this is Asaph. 
and, and he goes through this text, and we're not going to read all of it, but verse after verse is kind of like, this is what they have, this is what they have, this is what they have. And, and then verse number um, 11, uh, this, is where, this is what I think Ricky Gervais embodies. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Is there really a God? If, if, if he's real, we would all know it. And, and is there really knowledge there? And, and this was really a tough point for Asaph. In fact, uh, take a look at verse number 13. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I'm trying to live the Christian life here, man. I'm going to church at least once a month, maybe twice a month sometimes. And I catch it online when I don't show up. Sorry, that was really hard, wasn't it, to hear? Uh, But you're here, so that's really good. Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm coming to church. I'm giving to the church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying every day. And here I am, man. I can hardly get my bills paid. And stuff keeps happening in my life that I don't like. I'm trying hard to live this Christian life, and it's a struggle for me. And these guys, they hate God, and they got everything they want. Tell me this hasn't been hard for you. It's interesting what he's focusing on mostly. Do you see where it says in verse 14, I have been stricken and rebuked? He's talking about the guilt and the shame that he bears. These guys are able to go and live however they want to, and they prosper. But I'm trying to live it, and I still feel guilty. Now it changes. Look at verse number 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I can't get my brain around it until, until verse 17, I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. By the way, I had this dream the other night, and it was, oh, man, it was so vivid. Like, like I woke up, and I'm like, oh, that was, what was that again? <laughs> what did I dream about? I, I mean, when I was dreaming, it seemed so, so vivid to me, but now, three days later, I can't even remember what it was. And that's what this is talking about. That's what the wicked will be like. Here's the point. Our God is not an unjust God. And the wicked, though they seem to prosper now, will not get away with their wickedness. And we need to hear that because we are living in a wicked time. Do you know there's more slavery today than at any other point in time in the history of the world? Considerably more. During the American-European slave trade, depending on the numbers, 9 to 11 million people were held in slavery. It's a lot, 9 to a million people. It's a lot of people. But today, somewhere between 30 and 40 million people are in slavery. The majority is forced labor, but 38% of those are being held slave for sexual exploitation. That means there are men and women who are capturing 
children and, and women and putting them in that kind of slavery intentionally. And if that doesn't make you sick to your stomach, I don't know what will. And here's what you need to know. No sex trafficker will go unpunished. No unrepentant slave owner, no God-mocking atheist will get away with their sin. All will stand before God who is able to keep them till the day of judgment. There will be a resurrection for the unjust. God will not allow their sin to go unpunished. But we're sinners. Where's our hope? Because also, it's not just the resurrection of the unjust, but church, he's talking about the resurrection of the just. So let's focus on that for a second or two. What in the world is the resurrection of the just? Well, here's what it's not. The just are not people who have lived a just life. Wait, wait, hold on a second, Pastor. You're saying the unjust are those who've lived a wicked, unrighteous life, but the just aren't people who've lived a just and righteous life? No, that can't be. Because do you know how many people have lived a just and righteous life? One. <laughs> the scripture reveals this in uh, Romans 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. <laughs> No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul is clear about that. So then what's our hope? Because this morning, you know, maybe you're not a sex trafficker. Maybe your eyes have fallen on things that they shouldn't have fallen on, too, Intentionally. Maybe you're not a slaveholder. But should we put the Ten Commandments up and begin to see just how well we stand against all of those in our lives? We're all wicked. But Jesus. Check this out, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Can we read this last part together? so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are you kidding me? Righteous means just. It means you have a right standing before God. And God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become just. Well, how does that interaction take place? Well, take a look at Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been, check this out. Therefore, since we have been justified by church faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's been a time in my life where I believed Jesus died for me and rose again. And I put my faith in that. And that day in November of 1987, there was an exchange. My sin was laid on Jesus and his righteousness was laid on me by faith in that alone. Paul said this 
before in Romans chapter 1. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous, the just, shall live by church faith. No, we're all sinners. We're all unjust, but Jesus. And I hope that as you pray for the wicked of this world, that you pray they come to faith in Jesus. And then I pray that you live with this hope. This is what Paul is saying. I lived the life that he was ready to stand and make a defense. And what did he point to? Hey, there's going to be a resurrection. And this is Paul. I mean, all these verses I'm, I'm reading to you, this is Paul who is saying, there is a resurrection of the just, and I know who the just are. It's those who have placed their faith in Christ. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, there is a resurrection coming for you, church, to be with the Lord forever to be near to him, and that should give you hope. All right, back to uh, Acts 24, if you would please, Acts 24, and we're going to cap it off with this last conviction, an exhaustive faith, an expectant hope, and then this, an exemplary life, and I want to I unpack this by taking a look at this last verse here, verse number 16, and verse 16 says this, this is really interesting, and I'm telling you, this could be another hour, but it won't be, I promise. So I always take pains, he says, to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Wow, I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Let me pause for a second. Let's talk about Jiminy Cricket, shall we? Um, did you get that? Some of you got it, some of you didn't. He was a conscience of Pinocchio. Talk about conscience a little bit. Do you know that God has given you this mechanism in your mind, in your heart, in the immaterial part of you that's called the conscience? And it is that thing that kind of sounds the alarm bells and you begin to walk out of bounds. Now, here's the reality of it, because God's word talks about having a seared conscience. So you can, what you do and how you live affects how this conscience functions. And you could sear your conscience, meaning you could cut it off from the Holy Spirit and say, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, have a seared conscience. The Bible also talks about in Romans 14 about having an overactive conscience, so you feel guilty about things you shouldn't. And so what we need to do is strive to have a biblically trained conscience, one that knows the word of God and feels deeply about the word of God. Now, to get to that part that feels deeply about the word of God, here are two truths you need to know. Truth number one is this, how you live matters. You don't have the day off tomorrow? I got the day off tomorrow. The day off. How many of you go back to work tomorrow? Put my picture hand up. We go back to work tomorrow. How many of you don't work at all? I'm just getting no hands on any of them. Okay, great. <laughs> so next sermon is going to be get a job. All right. Anyway, um, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, um, you're going to go to the store sometime this week. You're going to interact with coworkers and neighbors and people. Do you know that what you actually do it matters. So our choices, our thoughts, our decisions, the words we say, it matters. Here's another, in fact, let me back this up biblically. Here's Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, which says this. Look carefully, then how, look carefully then how you walk, how you live your life, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Okay, we gotta be careful how we walk. 
Here's important truth number two. This is going to be a shocker. You ready for a shocker? Here it is. Your life is not lived for you. <gasps> I mean, think about that for a second. Your life is not about you. Now, I honestly, getting real, I think we can all mentally assent to that this morning. Okay, I, yeah, I can see that. Eh, but then we're going to live this week <laughs> and easily fall back into it's really about me and my happiness or my pleasure or my whatever, about being successful, about you fill in the blank. But here's the reality. Your life is not about you. It's really about God and others. It's really about God and others. Let me prove it to you again with Scripture. Here's Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look God not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Then I can put down there if you wanted to do all for the glory of God. And there's the two things, God and others. It matters before men because we live on mission of making the gospel known for Jesus. And so how I treat others will impact their receptivity to the gospel. Track with me on this? Paul was clear about this in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Do that study some point in time. But he made decisions thinking about how will this affect my witness, the game we're playing, the mission that we're on, how will this affect my witness for Jesus Christ? And so he was very careful to say, I want to be sure my conscience is good. Like I have treated others like I should treat others so that the gospel can go forward. And it matters before God because he died for me and I love him. And just as I love my dad, and when he was here, like whatever he wanted, I got that guy breakfast every single morning. I was sure when he was up, by the way, at 5.30, he was up with his coffee that I made for him. Why? Because I love my dad. And I want to honor God because I love my God. And so I want a conscience that is bound to the word of God and trained in the word of God so that I can live effectively before men and honoring before God. And so how do you do that? Well, before men, treat others right. Show them love and grace and forgiveness. And when you don't, make it right with them and make it right with God. How do I live before God, right? Well, love him. Obey his word, study his word, learn the boundaries in the word of God and do an exhaustive study of God's word. Old, New Testament, figure it out and get your life walking in accordance with that. And when you fail, go to Jesus and find forgiveness and grace and get up and try again. And let's repeat that every day for the next 365 days and we'll see how we do a year from now. Father, thank you for your love and your goodness. Thank you for your incredible grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge and the example of Paul who held closely to these three things, who testified and confessed, this is the way I live. And I would pray, Father, you would help us to walk in the same passions and convictions. A year from now, Father, may we be closer, more godly, more grace-filled than we are today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved.